You'll need a Bible this morning. Find the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you've got a bulletin on your way in, there's some notes. You can follow along with what we're going to talk about. This is week 2 in a long trek, a five-month trek through the book of Exodus. Our passage is Exodus 1-8 all the way through 2-10. And there's just a couple of details I want to throw at you and uh, have you thinking about before we read the passage. The first is this. We're going to read about uh, this morning a couple of Hebrew midwives. And there's debate among scholars about the ethnicity of these women. Their names are Shifra and Puha. And the debate is, are they Egyptian women who served as midwives for the Hebrews, or are they Hebrew women who served as midwives for their own people? I've got about 10 commentaries that I'm reading as I study for uh, each message in, uh, in Exodus here. This week, about half of them, I think it was about five, said they're Egyptian women, and they're working for or with the Hebrews, and the other half said, no, they're Hebrew women, and they're working for Pharaoh, but for, uh, for these Hebrew women. Personally, I think that it makes much more sense in the flow of the story to see these as Egyptian women. Their ethnicity is Egyptian, and they're working for the Hebrews, possibly overseeing like a, a guild or a, a whole host of midwives that would have worked with the Hebrews. You could think about these two ladies as like the charge nurses in charge of, of all the other midwives. Either way, I don't know that it makes a whole lot of difference in how we interpret the story, although I think that interpretation makes a little more sense. We really just don't know. We don't know what their ethnicity is. We do know that these two women feared God more than they feared man, more than they feared Pharaoh, and we know their names. Shifra and Pua, which is interesting because when you look at the story, we're about to read through it. Other than Moses, the midwives are the only two named characters in the story. We read about Moses' name at the very, very end. We read about Shifra and Pua. They're only mentioned here in the Old Testament. And in the story we're about to read, all the other characters are nameless, which is interesting because later we pick up some of the names. And it's also interesting because some of the names we'd like to know aren't mentioned at all. For example, Pharaoh. Scholars debate and argue, which Pharaoh was it? The Egyptians kept amazing records. We know the, the lineage and the dynasties and the, the dates for these Pharaohs. And scholars say, well, which one is it talking about? And the author of Exodus really isn't interested. He's just Pharaoh. His daughter is just Pharaoh's daughter. We read about two Levites, a Levite man and a Levite woman who fall in love and get married. And later we know that this is Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents. But here they're not named. It's just a Levite woman and a Levite man. We're going to read about this baby who was born. He has a sister. But in the story, it's just the baby's sister. Later we'll find out this is Miriam, but she's not mentioned here. And I suppose you could look at this early couple of chapters here and say, well, this is not very good storytelling. Like, don't you know you're supposed to introduce the characters? Like, we meet them, we want to know who they are. Who is the sister? Who is the, the mom and the dad of this baby? Who is the Pharaoh? Who are all these people that you're talking about? And the only names we get is Moses at the very end and these two Hebrew midwives. And what I want you to see is that's intentional. 
It's not just bad storytelling. It's not that later Moses or whoever you think wrote the book of Exodus, I think it was Moses, went down and said, oh, wait, i gotta, I got I to gotta throw these names in here. I never mentioned who this was. I think it's all intentional. I think it's masterful storytelling. The nameless characters remind us that everything that follows isn't about human characters. It's about God. So we saw some names last week, and they were all names that tied us back to the book of Genesis that reminded us that God had made promises to his people and he was going to keep those promises. Now we jump into the heart of the story. We're done looking back. We're up to the present time. We're learning about how all of the action unfolds, and we don't get any names of any of these characters. And it's the author's way of saying to you, it's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Amram and Jochebed. It's not about any of these people. This is a story about God and who he is, and what he's done for his people. And I mentioned to you last week, this is where all the popular movies about the book of Exodus go off the tracks. They all tell the same story, but they focus on the perspective of the human characters, as if the story is really about them. What do we learn from this character? What do we learn from that character? And the author of Exodus, Moses is telling you right from the bat, it's not about any of these people. This is a story about God and who he is and what he's done for his people. So the big idea obviously has to be about God. It's really simple. God raised up an unlikely Savior, and that's lowercase s, not capital S, but he raised up an unlikely Savior for his people. Follow along and let's read the passage, Exodus 1, 8 to 2, 10. Then we'll try to make sense of what we've read. This is the word of God from Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter... She shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God, dwelt, God dealt well excuse me, with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. 
the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, we look at this old story, this ancient, ancient story about your people and about how you raised up a Savior in the most unlikely of ways, from the most unlikely of places. Father, help us to see truth in your word this morning. Help us to see biblical themes and biblical stories that are repeated from beginning to end. Father, help us to apply them to our lives and help us to leave with a greater knowledge of you and a greater love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I bet some of you have family members who like to tell the same story over and over and over and over again. Thanksgiving is coming, and some of you know it's coming. You're going to sit around the table, and you're going to hear the same story you've heard a thousand times. You could just tell it from memory right now. Some of you are that person. Some of you we know. You're the person that tells the same story over and over again, and when you start to tell us, our eyes just roll back, and we just kind of nod and say, yes, yes. Oh, that's a great story. I love that story. Some of you, this is kind of funny, some of you laugh at that person now, but in a couple of years, you're going to be that person. Right now, you say, oh, I can't believe they're telling the same story. Well, just wait. You're going to turn into that person. Because be honest, that's kind of what we do as humans, right? We just kind of tell the same stories over and over and over again. Something happens in our lives. It reminds us of something that's happened in the past. And we say, oh, hey, that reminds me of this time. And all your friends say, yeah, 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 we know. We've heard it. We've heard it before. I got to be honest with you. I, I struggled when I read these verses this week, and I thought, how do, we, how do we just try to wrap our arms around this passage and make sense of it? I didn't want to break it down any further into a smaller section because it's all sort of telling one story. And as I read it, there were just so many things that kept popping up into my mind, and it just reminded me that the Bible, okay, you just take this with a grain of salt, the Bible's kind of like that crazy family member you have that keeps telling the same stories over and over and over again. When you read the Bible, if you pay attention, you start to read from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus all the way to Revelation. And if you're paying attention, you realize, ah, this story's kind of like that story. What God did for his people here is kind of like what God did for his people there. 
what God expected from his people in this story, that reminds me of what God called his people to do back in this story. And really, if you pay attention, you just see the same themes over and over and over and over again. And the faces may change and the characters may change, but God is the constant. And the same sorts of things happen over and over and over again. It's true all throughout the Old Testament, and it's even true into the New Testament all the way to the book of Revelation. So I don't know that I've come up with the best way to preach this passage, but what I want to do is just kind of walk through the story and talk about some of the things that happen. And as we go, I just want you to see some of the biblical themes that show up here in Exodus that you've already seen in Genesis and that you continue to see all the way throughout the Scriptures. And in bringing these themes up, I'm hoping that we sort of give give uh, to ourselves a framework to say these are things that happen in the Bible over and over and over again. They're things that you've got to understand if you want to make sense of the stories that you read in Scripture. So seven biblical themes. I cut my list way down. Seven seemed like a good place to stop. And uh, so we're going to talk about seven biblical themes in this story. I want you to start looking in the text, and I want you to look between verse 7 and verse 8. In most of your Bibles, there's a little white space there, or at least there's a new paragraph between verse 7 and between verse 8. In that little white space, that little gap, you need to insert in your brain, or you could maybe even make a note, that hundreds of years pass by. Sometimes we just start ticking through the Old Testament stories and we read them as if it's just one thing happened right after another, bang, 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 bang. But between verse 7 and verse 8, hundreds of years go by. And when you come to verse 8 and you meet this new Pharaoh, you read, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If you read it flat, you say, how could he not know Joseph? He was second in command of all Egypt. Just because you're a new Pharaoh, you've never heard of of the vice president or the, the assistant prime minister or whatever? That doesn't make sense. But hundreds of years have passed. That's an incredible amount of time for people who live in a nation that is barely hundreds of years old. God's people are in Egypt. They're multiplying. We know that from verse 6 and 7. And hundreds of years pass. And a new dynasty comes. And the old dynasty is gone. And there's a new Pharaoh. And maybe he's heard of a guy named Joseph. Maybe he passed history class and he knows all the Abraham Lincolns and the George Washingtons and all the great people in in Egyptian history, but he doesn't know Joseph, and he doesn't care about Joseph, and he doesn't have any concern for his people. And right out of the gate, when you jump into this story, we read that he knows he's got to keep a lid on the Hebrews. He knows he can't let this Hebrew problem get out of control. And so he starts off with slavery. We're going to enslave them. We're going to make them work so much they won't even have time to reproduce. We're just going to work them to death. And then the plan escalates. And I think when you read the story, it sort of sounds like he, Pharaoh calls in these midwives, and it's almost like it's a secret plan to kill the, the baby boys. It's like he doesn't want everyone to know. He's not making this a public decree. He's just talking to these two women. He's saying, listen, this is what we're going to do. When the babies are born and they're male, we're going to kill the males. And then lastly, when neither of those things work, the plan escalates, and it's full, full out, full on genocide. There's no secret about it. He just says to everyone, if a, a baby boy is born among the Hebrews, chuck it into the Nile. You can imagine the dread for God's people, for a young couple, 
who finds out that they're pregnant, they're expecting. They don't have sonograms, they don't have ultrasounds, they don't have blood tests like we have today. You just have to wait and find out, is it a boy or is it a girl? Do I get to keep my baby girl or are they going to take my baby boy and throw him into the river? In all of this that you see, Pharaoh is playing the role of the offspring of the serpent. This is a biblical theme. It goes back to early chapters in Genesis when there's this conflict between the serpent in the garden and Adam and Eve, and God comes and he says, look, the conflict's not going away. The offspring of the serpent is going to fight against the offspring of the woman, and there's going to be conflict. He's going to try to kill the one, and the other's going to fight back against the other. Listen, I hate snakes, but this is more than hating snakes. This is not just we don't like snakes and snakes want to bite us. This is a diabolical role that pops up all the way all the way through Scripture, where the offspring of the serpent wants to kill God's people. You see it right out of the gate when Cain takes his brother out into the field and murders him. You see it later in the Old Testament. Do you remember the man named Haman in the book of Esther who wanted to round up all the Jews and have them killed? He's playing the exact same role. It's the same story on repeat. Here is the offspring of the serpent trying to kill the offspring of of the woman. You see it all the way to the end in the, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, when you read about a dragon who is waiting for this child to be born so that he can put this child to death. He can devour this child. And here in Exodus, it's Pharaoh trying to destroy God's people. The great part about the story, the reason we love the story, is that it doesn't work. In fact, his failure is comical. Look in the text at Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh says this in verse 10. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Meaning, we need a plan, and it needs to be a good plan. We're going to have to really put our thinking caps on here. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. The plan is designed to prevent the Hebrews from multiplying. If you keep reading in verse 12, you read this. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. This is a a biblical theme you see all throughout Scripture. It's the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Which one will prevail? Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19 like this. Do I have that verse up on the screen? thought I had it on the screen. If I don't, let's flip to it. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 19, says this. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. There's a wisdom out there and God says, I'm going to destroy it. It's going to come to nothing. The discernment of the discerning, I'm going to thwart it. It's not going to work. When Pharaoh says, let's deal shrewdly with the Hebrews, he thinks he's acting in wisdom and his plan fails at every step along the way. The forced labor does not stop the baby boom. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. The Hebrew midwives refuse to go along with the plan. They won't commit infanticide. Even when a baby boy gets thrown into the Nile, God thwarts that wisdom and he thwarts that plan and it ends up so that that baby boy grows up in Pharaoh's own house. So you see the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man in contest here, and the outcome is obvious. It's all pointing us to the sovereignty of God. We talked about sovereignty last week. God is in control. 
He does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. Nobody stops him. Nobody stays his hand. He doesn't need permission from anyone to do anything. He's in complete control of this story. And the irony is, Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, is completely convinced that he's the one in control. He really thinks that he's the one on the throne. But he can't control slaves. And he can't control midwives. And he can't even control the waters of the Nile that he hopes will drown these baby boys. He's in control of nothing. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. This comes later, but it continues the theme we're talking about. It says, God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. There may be a part of you when you read that there arose a new king over Egypt and he didn't know Joseph. You almost want to cue the music like, bum, bum, bum. This is bad news. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, don't hit the music yet. This is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. God sets up kings and he brings them down. That truth applies from Genesis to Revelation. It applies in the book of Exodus. God was in control of who's on the throne of Egypt. Look what we read in the book of Proverbs. The king's hand is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Kings may make all these decrees and decisions, but God is the one who's ultimately in control of it. All of these commands for slavery and infanticide and genocide, not one of them escapes the control of the Lord's hand. He is sovereign over all of it. That's a biblical theme from Genesis to Revelation. Now, some of us hear about God's sovereignty, and because our hearts are warped and wicked, we say, well, if God's in control, I guess that means that nothing really matters. I guess we just can kick back and whatever's going to happen happens and we try to sort of pass off some sort of fatalism as if the things that we do don't matter and the things that we experience are insignificant because God's just in control of that. And this story pushes back against those tendencies in our heart in two ways. The first way is this. The story points us to the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. Did you notice how The author piles up these words in verse 13 and 14. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard work. They had to do work in mortar and brick and in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This was suffering for the people. God was in control, but the people were suffering. We shouldn't deny that or pretend that the Bible somehow exempts God's people from suffering. God's people are never in the Bible exempt from suffering. Jacob's family experienced a famine that forced them to move to Egypt. It's hard for people in the United States to think about what a famine would be like, but let's just say at the very least, their bellies were hungry. They had no food. They did not know where This afternoon or tomorrow's meal was going to come from. They were hungry. They end up in Egypt and they're slaves. They're enslaved by the Egyptians and it's ruthless and it's bitter. When they come out, they experience suffering throughout the rest of the Old Testament story. They they end up in the promised land, but just read the book of Judges. 
They suffered over and over and over. God gave these these foreign nations to oppress the people and to drive them back. They experienced suffering. In the exile, when God kicked his people out of the promised land for their disobedience, there was incredible suffering. We read the stories of the exile, and it just sort of says, Nebuchadnezzar came, and he hauled them out of the land, and we read it, and we don't think about it much. But there's one little story that just sort of gives you a glimpse of what the suffering was like. The last king of of Judah was a man named Zedekiah, and in this last invasion where Babylon came to conquer the people and flatten the temple. Zedekiah was taken with his sons, and he was forced to kneel down before these Babylonian military leaders, and his sons were slaughtered right in front of his face, and then his eyes were plucked out so that the last thing that he saw was his sons dying in front of him. That's the kind of suffering that they've experienced. God's people have never been exempt from suffering. Jesus wasn't exempt from suffering. The Bible says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The New Testament church was not exempt from suffering. You can read about it in the book of Acts. You can read it in the letters that the apostle John wrote to the churches in the first few chapters of Revelation. God's people have never been exempt from suffering. When we see news stories like we saw last Sunday about people walking into a church and slaughtering people for seemingly no reason. It just shocks us. And it shocks us because in this country, most of the time, most of us are pretty comfortable. We don't experience great suffering like some of our brothers and sisters around the world do. And an incident like last week reminds us suffering is real. God's people have never been exempt from suffering. And it's not helpful to a person who's suffering to come to them tritely and say, well, God's in control. Well, God's sovereign. He is. But it doesn't take away their suffering. And it doesn't make them feel better about it in the moment. And we're reminded right here, yes, God is sovereign, but suffering is real, and God's people have never been exempt from it. Here's one more check to the idea of God's sovereignty, and it's the responsibility of man. The fact that God was in control of everything that happened in this story in Exodus in no way absolved human beings of the responsibility of being obedient and courageous. That's why these two midwives are named. Shifra and Puha. God was in control, but they, on their part, had to take obedient, courageous action, and it was risky for them. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, I think it's verse 23, commends Moses' parents for hiding him. What they were supposed to do was throw him in the river, and instead they defied Pharaoh and they hid this, this baby boy as long as they could. They're commended for that. In the book of Acts, just to see the biblical theme play out, Acts 4.19, Peter stands up before the authorities, the authorities in Jerusalem and he says, we are going to obey God rather than you. And it may cost us, but we believe he's in control. We know Peter believed that. Just keep reading in Acts 4. He says, of the worst thing that ever happened, the crucifixion of God's son, God completely ordained it. He predestined it. What happened to Jesus was exactly what God planned to happen. He was in control, but that didn't mean Peter just sat back and said, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. 
He stood up and he was obedient and he was courageous. You see the, the responsibility of man here. I want you to look at Exodus 2-3. This is one of the neatest parts of the story. The text says in the ESV, when she could hide him no longer, here's one of these courageous acts, she took for him a basket. Basket. The Hebrew word there is tabah. And you'll find it only one other place in the Old Testament. You'll find it in the story where God comes to a man named Noah and says, Noah, I want you to build a tabah, an ark. And the author of Exodus is giving you a clue here, and they're saying, you need to make a connection here. This is the same kind of story. There were waters of judgment in the flood, and God brought his people safely through it. And there are waters of judgment in Egypt, and God is about to bring his people safely through them. The exact same word used only two places in the Old Testament, once in the story of Noah, once in the story of Moses, and it's this obvious biblical theme of what we just call salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. You see it from Genesis all the way through the Bible. In the book of Genesis, God comes to Noah and he says, judgment is coming on the world. The floods will bring destruction and death, but you're going to pass through safely in this tabah. These waters of Egypt, the waters of the Nile, were meant to be death for the Hebrew babies. And God says, no, 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 no. Through this judgment, there's going to be salvation. You see the exact same thing when they actually leave Egypt, right? God's people are right on the edge of the Red Sea. Moses raises his staff. The wind blows all night. The sea parts and the people walk through. There's salvation for the people through the water. And then Pharaoh's army comes in and it's judgment. God's people are saved through an act of judgment. I'm telling you, when you get these two ideas connected in your brain that God saves his people through judgment, you see it on repeat over and over and over and over again all the way through the Bible. I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus was baptized. We get so confused. I know I get so confused about Jesus being baptized, and we're in good company because John the Baptist was confused too, right? Jesus comes, and John's out there calling people to repent. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and pass under these waters of judgment. When you go under the waters in baptism, it's a picture of death. Because if we hold you under the water, you die. And through the water of judgment, you're alive. And John's calling people to repent. And Jesus walks out into these waters of judgment. And he says to John, I want you to baptize me. And John says, whoa. This is a baptism of repentance. What exactly are you repenting of? I don't think you understood the message. This is for people who need to pass safely through the judgment of God. And confess their sins. And Jesus says, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. And we sort of file that away and say, I don't really know what that means. But that was Jesus' answer. And I think what you see when you read the Gospels is that Jesus relives Israel's history. He's reliving all the things that happened to Israel. And in this baptism, he's saying, look, through judgment comes life. And it's a pointer, not just to Jesus' baptism, but ultimately to the cross. The judgment of God rains down on Jesus on the cross. 
we don't look at the cross and remember the judgment so much. We remember the life and the salvation that it brings to us. But it's life, it's salvation through judgment. Look what we read in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bears our sin and he takes the wrath of God and the judgment of God that should have fallen on us and he passes safely through it and he provides life for his people. It's salvation through judgment. And it's exactly what you see when this Levite woman takes her baby son and throws him into the waters that were supposed to be meant for death. And God in this ark, in this tabah, preserves his life and brings him out on the other side. There's salvation, and it's salvation through judgment. The last thing I want to mention is this. All of this sort of adds up to this theme. God raises up unlikely saviors. He raises up unlikely saviors. He does it throughout the Bible. And just one place you can go look. There's so many I could mention, but just look at the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And think about the people who are mentioned. We read about Abraham, the pagan, Isaac, who was not a great father. Jacob, who was a a con man. Joseph, who was a braggart with a huge out-of-whack ego. You read about Rahab, who was a prostitute. You read about Gideon, who was a coward. You read about Samson, who was a total mess. You read about David, who was a murderer and adulterer. The youngest of his family, not the oldest. And in all these stories, you realize... God is raising up unlikely people to save his people. That's what he does in Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not that a baby was born in the palace in Jerusalem, but that a baby was born to a young virgin who wasn't even married. He was born in a barn. And Mary sings about it. You should go back and read the song that Mary sings in Luke 2. This is what it's about. God has raised up salvation in the most unlikely of places. God raises up unlikely saviors for his people. We'll end with this question. What does this story teach me about God? Let me suggest four truths that you need to walk away with. Number one, God is the hero of this story. It's not Moses. This this story, if anything, establishes the fact that Moses is only around to lead the people out because of God's grace and his mercy, about what God had done in his life. It's not Amram, it's not Jochebed, it's not Pharaoh's daughter, it's none of these people. God is the hero of this story. And in Exodus 2, in Exodus 1, God has not taken center stage yet. He's working behind the scenes. He's working quietly. He's working in surprising ways. But you just hang on in the book of Exodus. He will take center stage and show to the entire world that he is the hero of the story. Number two, God always keeps his promises. We've talked about this last week. We're going to talk about it this week. We're going to talk about it throughout the book of Exodus. God always keeps his promises. Genesis 22, Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, and the Lord stops him and says... Abraham says of the event, on the mountain of the Lord it was provided. And the Jewish people walk by that mountain and they remind themselves, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide, the Lord will provide. And God's people, when they really need provision, are about to see on the grandest scale that God will provide for his people. You can go to Genesis 46. 
Jacob is getting ready to go to Egypt with his family, and God makes him this promise. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. I'm going with you, and I'm going to bring you up. Hundreds of years have passed. 400 years have passed since, the, since God made that promise to Jacob. He hasn't forgotten his promise. He's not working off Jacob's timetable. He's going to keep his promise. Genesis 50, God speaking through Joseph. And Joseph says to his brothers, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows he's about to die and he says, God is going to come. And he's going to bring you out of here and he's going to take us back to our homeland where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. He was slow, as we count it, slow in keeping that promise. Hundreds of years pass and God's people wonder, did he forget? Has he forgotten us? He hasn't forgotten. He always keeps his promises. And all of these promises are about to be kept. Number three, God uses the weak to shame the strong. You see it in Exodus 2. You see it in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and 28, that says God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You know, Egypt has a great history. It's interesting to study and to to read about the pharaohs and their military conquests and their building programs. Last week we talked about the Great Pyramid of Giza. We talked about the fact that when Jacob's family moved to Egypt, it was already hundreds of years old. By the time the Hebrews leave Egypt, it's almost a thousand years old. And how impressive it is and how big it is, the biggest man-made building on the earth for 3,800 years. And you know, the Bible's just not that interested or impressed. You can read about Amenhotep and Thutmose and Ramses and all of these great Egyptian pharaohs, and when you read about them in the Bible, it's just Pharaoh. The biblical authors are not impressed with these pharaohs, not in the least. For all the greatness of Egypt, when you look at the story from the biblical perspective, the greatest act ever done by a member of the Egyptian royal family is not building pyramids or winning battles or being deified. It's pulling a baby out of a river. The Bible is not impressed with the greatness of Egypt. The Bible is impressed that God, in his sovereignty and his power and his wisdom, uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish to shame those who think that they're wise. Last idea is this. God's plan will not be frustrated. It will not be frustrated. It was true in the Exodus and it's true today. Pharaoh tried slavery. He tried infanticide. He tried genocide. He tried everything he knew of. None of it worked. God's plan would not be frustrated frustrated. One of the commentaries that I'm working through is a guy named A.W. Pink. He was born in uh, England in the 1880s. He died in the United States in the 1950s, so not all that long ago in the grand scheme of things. 
He wrote a commentary called Gleanings in Exodus, and he's reflecting on this idea that God's plan will not be frustrated. And this is the the quote that I'll end with. He says, Better might a worm withstand the tread of an elephant than the puny creature resist the Almighty. Pharaoh certainly thinks of himself as way more than a, a puny worm, but he's about to find out that nobody can frustrate God's plans. God has made promises to his people, and he intends to keep them. You see that in the Exodus. And I hope you see that what's true in the Exodus is true for you. That when God promises to be with you, he intends to keep that promise. When Jesus says, I hold my people in my hand, and no one can snatch them away from me because the Father who is in me is greater than anyone in the world, he intends to keep that promise. When Jesus says, I'm going to build a church and the gates of hell will not ever be able to stand against it, he intends to keep that promise. The view of God and the picture of God that you get in the book, the book of Exodus is so big and so powerful, it shatters the puny view of God that so many Americans hold. And if you take anything away from this story and anything away from the rest of the book of Exodus, it's got to be that your view of God is elevated. It's not a story about Moses. It's not a story about his brother or his sister or his parents or the Pharaoh or Pharaoh's daughter. It's a story about God and who he is and what he's done for his people. I want you to bow and let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We believe that these stories are true. We believe that these ancient stories have authority over us. Father, we want our view of you to be shaped by what we read in this book. Father, forgive us when we have a small view of who you are and what you can do and what you're capable of. Father, forgive us when we expect you to work in ways that that you don't work. Father, you have always worked through the weak and the foolish. You have always called us to be courageous and obedient. Father, you have never exempted your people from suffering. So, Father, as we walk through life in obedience to you, and as we experience suffering in this world, we pray that our vision of you and our our thoughts about you would not be small, but that they would be very big, that they would be based on what we read in the Scriptures. Father, that we believe that you set up kings and you tear them down. You control the, the king like a stream of water in your hand. Father, your plans will not be frustrated. Lord, as we take a minute to think about the salvation that you have worked for your people through Jesus, as we take a moment to sing about Christ as our Savior, as our mediator, Father, help us to embrace the truth that through Jesus and through the judgment that he bore on the cross, we know salvation and we know life. Father, be honored as we lift our voices. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.